I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. This is the prophet's final prayer. Now we're going to look at the first 16 verses of this prayer. Lord willing, on Thursday at the prayer service, we're going to look at the final triumphant hymn. It's as though his prayer bursts into song at the end. But we're going to look at the first 16 verses here. Having heard what God had just said concerning the wrath that He would pour out upon all unbelievers, but the faith that His people should hold, and the way that they should respond by worshiping Him and Him alone. Hearing that, we read the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard Your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive Your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were You displeased with the rivers? Was Your anger against the rivers? Was Your wrath against the sea that You rode on Your horses, Your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made, was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over Your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. And I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to his to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text for this morning is a prayer. And as we know, it's not the first prayer in this book. It's the third. But this prayer is different in character from the first two. At the start of chapter 1, the prophet cried out to God with indignation. How long, O Lord, will I cry out to you and you do not hear? Israel is living in sin and it looks like you, Lord, have allowed it. And so Habakkuk, not able to understand that, calls on the Lord to act. Well, then God says He's going to act. He's going to raise up Babylon. And again, Habakkuk cries out to God. 
This time in confusion, in deep concern, because God is holy. And He's sovereign over all men, but Babylon is wicked. It's filled with unholiness. How can God use such a people as instruments of His justice? It's unfathomable to Habakkuk. And so he calls out to God in confusion. In each of those cases, the prophet was, in a sense, calling God to account for actions that seemed, in his human judgment, to be inconsistent at best, inexcusable at worst. But this prayer is different. No longer is the prophet questioning the ways and the purpose of God. No longer does he act as though he himself had all the answers. Because Habakkuk has been humbled by what God has revealed to him. So now instead of questioning God, the prophet chooses to trust. He seeks mercy even as he confesses God's goodness and his power. This is a prayer of confident faith. And as such, this is a prayer that stands as a beautiful example, brothers and sisters, for us. Joe and Kathy, you brought Aubrey this, uh, forward this morning because God has laid his claim upon her. She's a recipient of God's glorious promises. And therefore, you were asked to, to vow before God and, and his people to raise her in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, to raise her as a disciple of the Lord. And we joined you vowing together to assist in that calling. This prayer, brothers and sisters, this prayer is an excellent example of the kind of discipleship that we are to encourage in Aubrey. The attitude of this prayer is unique. Those first two prayers, those are the attitude that comes natural to sinful men. We want to tell God what He needs to know. We want to tell Him what He ought to do. If only He would listen to our advice, our counsel, then everything would be just fine. That's how we're tempted to pray. But this prayer, this prayer leads us to acknowledge humbly that God is right, that God is good, and that we simply trust in Him. God's prophet here confesses confident faith in the true God. That's our theme, and that, brothers and sisters, is a lesson that we need to take to heart. God's prophet confesses confident faith in the true God. And that confession begins with him pleading for mercy from the just God. He starts out, notice how how he starts out by confessing the fear of the Lord. He has heard what God said. The distinction God makes between the righteous and the wicked, the humble and the proud. And also how he has pronounced... Woes, judgment against those who would persist in their proud rebellion. And having heard, he says, I was afraid. He feared the Lord. Now surely, at a minimum, that implies that he trembles at God's great power. But, but knowing Habakkuk's faith, it seems more likely that this refers not just to him trembling before God, but also to his awe of God, his respect for God. And that's appropriate, isn't it? God commands His people to fear Him, not with abject terror, but in the sense of respecting Him, honoring Him, highly esteeming the Lord. In Isaiah 61, or 66, God says, On this one I will look, 
on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He wants us to fear him. In fact, we heard in our call to worship this morning from Revelation 15, the saints cry out, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Habakkuk fears the Lord, which is exactly the right way to approach him. Not proudly, not full of ourselves, but fearing the Lord. The prophet sees what we need to see, that God is holy, that we are not, that God is sovereign and good, that His plans can be trusted. Knowing that God is just and that His justice must be manifested, fearing the Lord, the prophet therefore pleads for mercy. Notice how he says he remembers. He remembers what God has done for His people. How He delivered them out of their slavery in Egypt, how He sustained them through their years in the wilderness, how He brought them by His power into the land. And there, even when they sinned, even when He had to raise up enemies against them, God raised up judges to deliver them from the hand of the enemies whom they deserved. Habakkuk remembers all the work that God has done, and therefore he says, O Lord, revive Your work. That's a plea for renewal. Israel has earned the righteous wrath of God... And yet, Habakkuk pleads for mercy, for new life for those people. Revive your work in the midst of years. That means soon. Don't wait for the day of judgment. Lord, please pour out your mercy on your people quickly. Bring justice, certainly, to the enemies of God within Israel. Bring your justice against those who would attack and destroy your people. But pour forth your mercy on those who trust in you. Understand, brothers and sisters, this, this plea for mercy is unique. Folks who don't truly know God, they tend to pray that, to pray or even just to expect that God who will forgive everyone, bar none, regardless of their attitude, regardless of their faith, regardless of what they have done, that God is love and therefore God will forgive, period. But that's not what God's Word shows us. If God was not just, He would not be faithful because He has promised to punish the sins of those who maintain their rebellion against Him. And if He suddenly doesn't do that, that shows that God is not truly holy and God is not truly just and therefore we cannot trust Him. So Habakkuk doesn't deny the need for God to show justice upon his enemies, but he pleads for mercy undeserved. He recognizes he doesn't deserve it. The people of God don't deserve it. But he prays that God would work mercy. He's praying for Christ. That God would be able in some way to be just while also being the justifier of those who sin. And folks, that needs to be our prayer. Not that God would neglect His justice, that He would neglect His faithfulness, but that God, while being just, while being faithful, while showing Himself to be the holy God, would also show mercy undeserved. God delights in that prayer because it's a prayer that must be born of humility. 
And that brings us to our second point, starting with verse 3. Habakkuk recalls the works of God that show forth His majesty, professing the majesty of our glorious God. That's the second thing he does. This section, comprising verses 3 through 7, begins by proclaiming God's origins, not His ultimate origins, because, of course, God is eternal. He has no beginning. But Habakkuk speaks on behalf of God's people. And from their perspective, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Timon is a region in Edom. If you're looking at Israel, the Mediterranean Sea over here, the Jordan River here, Edom is here. And Timon is in Edom. Okay? And Mount Paran, that's south of that, in the wilderness, north of the Sinai wilderness. So what he's saying is, while they were in Egypt, seemingly forgotten by the Lord, under the hand and the wrath of Egypt, suddenly God arose from beyond the wilderness. From the place of promise, the place that He had promised to give and to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God, from the place of promise, arose and heard the cry of the people of promise. And He came to deliver them with the greatness of His might. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Now, of course, that's a general truth. But that speaks of His deliverance of His people from Egypt. His glory covered the heavens. Think of the the Shekinah cloud, the glory cloud of God, which stood before them at night as a pillar of fire and at day as a pillar of shining cloud. So bright, so overwhelming that it turned their eyes away from the heavens and back to Him. This was the time when God was glorified in the sight of all the nations because they saw, they heard how He overthrew the world power of Egypt, how He utterly laid the land waste and came out in a manner that utterly destroyed the mighty army of Egypt. This is the God whom Israel serves, whom we serve. And He is glorious. When Moses looked upon him on the mountain and came back down. He himself shone with a glory that, that prevented God's people from looking at him. When he met with them on Mount Sinai, the mountain shook and the lightning flashed and the clouds came down and the people trembled. This is the God who is great and glorious, whose majesty is to be adored. And then Habakkuk turns to the might of God expressed against his enemies. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. That word for pestilence is the word that's used for that disease which struck all of the livestock of Egypt, but not those of Israel, and struck them down. This was a, a terrifying, inexplicable, suddenly appearing disease. And fever, of course, fever is serious today, but back then there was no acetaminophen, there was no ibuprofen, and there was no real knowledge of what caused most fevers. Many times fevers were fatal. What he's saying there is that, that God's judgment is utterly absolute. When he came against Egypt, which refused to release his people from their grasp, when he came against Israel in the wilderness in the midst of their rebellion, God had the power to bring His enemies low in an instant. And that judgment of God is something that the whole world has beheld. 
Verse 6 says, He stood and measured the earth. He is sovereign over all the earth. And He is the one, says the Bible. He is the one who has measured out and delineated the boundaries for every nation, for every people, for every family of the earth. By His judgment, every person, every family exists where it is. He looked and startled the nation, says the prophet. Our God is able to upend a nation, a culture, the world in an instant. Look at the, the turmoil that our nation has been cast into by germs so small that we can't even see them by the eye. God ordained that. God is able to upend the situation of the world in an instant. Even the mountains and the hills acknowledge His majesty. They tremble and shake. Their earthquakes acknowledging that God is sovereign even over them. They bow down when God commands, acknowledging the will of our Heavenly Father. The peoples of Kushan and Midian, they denied that. That's why they're mentioned. This was a, these were both nomadic peoples who lived near and in the promised land. They served false gods refused to serve the true God and oppressed the people of the true God. And as a result, God judged them, caused them to bow the knee before Him. And in fact, today there are none of them left. You see the point in all this? Everyone and everything will profess the majesty of our glorious God. They will, every one of them. All the creation was made and all of it has been commanded to show forth the glory of God. Now, of course, much of mankind refuses they serve false gods made after the image of man. They worship the creation rather than the ever-blessed Creator. But periodically God reminds the world. He alone possesses sovereign majesty. He alone is able to rule over the world according to His perfect power. And it's our calling as the people who know Him and who love Him and who are loved by Him. It is our calling... To lead the world in professing the majesty of our glorious God. That He alone is to be worshipped. And more than that, we need to be confident that He will use that majesty to bless us. That's the emphasis in verses 8 through 15. That's our third point. The prophet is recalling the might of our faithful God. Not only the majesty, but the might of our faithful God. At the start and at the end of this section, we see God portrayed as a cavalry soldier. Were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Horses in that age and culture weren't used for transportation, mostly. And no one except kings owned them for pleasure. They were instruments of war. They allowed the king to deploy his best soldiers with a speed and an effectiveness that was utterly unheard of in that age. They could pull a chariot that was the ancient equivalent of a battle tank, bringing forth the wrath of the soldiers with speed and power. What this is saying is that when God attacked the people, especially speaking of the people of Egypt, when He burst through the sea allowing His people safe passage. And then when the, the army of Egypt dared to follow, He cast that sea down on top of them. It was as though the Lord mounted a war horse and personally attacked the nation of Egypt. And they stood no chance. 
Verse 15 takes up this refrain again. Saying, you walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. He's saying there that so great is our God's power that He's able to to walk right through the midst of the mighty sea. Understand, the, the sea was terrifying to the people of God. It was deep and dark and filled with unknown creatures and dangers. But God... He doesn't fear the sea. He rides right into the midst of it and it flees before Him. You see, our God, there is no limit to His power and He uses it to bring salvation to His people. He doesn't just sit back and wait to see what's going to happen with them. He acts. He rides into battle personally in order to save His people. And then a different image is shown. In verses 9 and 14, we have the image of an archer. Now, children, an archer, understand, is someone who uses a bow and arrow. In ancient armies, they didn't have guns, they didn't have tanks, they didn't have bombs. What they had was swords and arrows. And arrows were terrifying. Because with a sword or a spear, you had to get up close and personal to the enemy. But with, a, with an arrow, you could attack them from far away. You could, you could throw many arrows at them shoot many arrows across the field and they couldn't see them until it was usually too late to duck too late to get out of the way well God presents himself in verse 9 as an archer he makes his bow ready preparing for war and then curiously it says he speaks oaths over his arrows recalling his covenant promises to protect and defend his people our God defends the people who trust in him And then in verse 14, we see his target, the enemies of the people of God and their leaders. These folks came against Israel to scatter them like a tornado. Their intention was to devour the people of God like the rich devour the poor. But our God prevented their wicked plan from coming to pass. Our God is both faithful and able to protect his people. In fact, Habakkuk emphasizes no one is greater in power. Look at verses 10 and 11. The mountains see our God and they tremble. Mountains are strong. They're immense. You can't move them. But God can. And He does. The floodwaters, terrifying in their power to sweep away men and creatures and even cities. The floodwaters flee before God. And then there's the deep, the depths of the sea. No one can withstand the power of the ocean, but before God, it groans and raises its hands in surrender. Even the sun and the moon. Think of Joshua 10, when God caused the sun to stop in its path across the sky until Joshua had accomplished the defeat of his enemies. Even the sun and the moon obey the command of our God. Folks, there is nothing in all of this creation that can withstand our God's incomparable might. If the mountains and the floodwaters, the sea and the sun and the moon cannot withstand our God's sovereignty, can Babylon go beyond God's command? Media and Persia? Russia today or China? Can the coronavirus go beyond the bounds that God has established? Absolutely not. And our God employs that might, not aimlessly, but with great intention. Verses 12 and 13 show us that God employs His power to bless His people. 
God conquered the land of Canaan on Israel's behalf. He quelled the outrage of His enemies during the age of the judges. Enemies attacked the people of God, massing against them. But it so excited God's wrath to see this wicked people opposing the people whom He loved that He rose up against them and just destroyed them. That's how He punished those who opposed Him when they entered the land of Canaan and when enemies arose against them afterward. But even as He exercised His wrath against His enemies, He blessed those who trusted Him. Israel was far too weak to stand on its own power. But God determined that He would keep His promises faithfully and therefore the enemy was defeated at His hand. Time and again in the history of Israel, the might of God has devoured and overcome the enemies of God. And folks, that has immense import for our faith. Look at verse 13. God's eye is upon His anointed one. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. To whom does that refer? Well, immediately it speaks of the king. The king was known as the anointed one, the Mashiach. He was the one on whom God had set the promise of his power and his presence. God employed that king in order to symbolize the power and the authority that he would exercise over his people. But ultimately, it points toward Christ, doesn't it? Throughout the millennia, God has watched over and protected his people and employed his might in order to preserve them. But the ultimate fulfillment of all of His promises is that which He brought forth through Jesus. The One who came to be our King and our Prophet and our Priest, bearing the anointing of all three offices and fulfilling them all perfectly. He is the One who came forth to conquer Satan and death itself and all of the world that would stand against the people of God. And that victory has been accomplished, even though we don't yet see it. The war has been won, even though the battle rages on. He has exercised, and He is exercising His might in order to protect and preserve the people of God, and that's us. But it's only if we know that, That we can trust Him. That we can stand before Him in the way that we must. And that's what we see at the last part of this passage. Verse 16. Now, of course, there are three verses beyond that. Lord willing, as I said, we'll look at those on Thursday. And see how Habakkuk celebrates God and what He has done and what He is doing. But meanwhile, the heart of the lesson is in verse 16. Where we find the prophet revealing faith. In the only true God. First Habakkuk again confesses his fear in the Lord. Much as he did at the start. Understand, this is not merely a grudging respect of God. Habakkuk is genuinely undone by the thought of the might of God exercised on behalf of his people. It shows him his own weakness. It recalls for him his unworthiness to stand before the holy God. He feels like he's going to... To fall apart 
in the presence of our God. And thus humbled, Habakkuk turns his heart to the Lord. Don't miss the importance of that. As long as we draw near to God proudly, feeling like we're owed something by God, thinking that we're pretty good in His sight, as long as we draw near to God proudly, thinking we're enough, we are an offense to God. Not only can we not expect Him to answer our prayers, but brothers and sisters, we should expect His wrath when we approach Him full of ourselves. God says in Second Chronicles 7, Only when my people humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turning from their sin, will I hear from heaven and forgive them and restore. So Habakkuk begins by fearing the Lord, but he doesn't stop there. He trusts the Lord to preserve and to prosper him. Remember what Habakkuk has come to know. He knows that he lives in the midst of a rebellious people who deserve judgment. He knows that God is sending the wicked Babylonians to punish wayward Israel. He knows that Babylon itself will face the wrath of God. And he knows that he is one of God's beloved ones. He has trusted God. And the just shall live by his faith. He has believed God's promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And therefore, in the day of trouble, he says, he will rest. God's servant will trust, waiting quietly on, on the unfolding of the will of God. And he will rest. Because he knows that God has faithfully kept his promises in the past, defended and preserved his people against their enemies. And therefore, God will keep his promises in the future, will keep and defend his people then. What brought Habakkuk to that place of comfort, that position of rest? Folks, it was God's truth. This whole passage is merely a poetic recounting of facts. The fact that the Holy God remembered His people and came to deliver them in the midst of their slavery. The fact of that, that God's might causes the nations to shudder and the creation to shake. The fact that God fought for His people like the mightiest warrior. The fact that God has never let His people down. Habakkuk remembered those facts about the true God and in those facts he rested with great comfort. And folks, that must be our foundation if we are to have true faith, true comfort. As long as our hearts focus on the problem, we will fear. We will fear for our nation if we're focused on the problem of the divisive politics of our age. We will fear for our health if we focus on the problem of COVID-19. We will fear for our children if we focus on the problem of a godless culture. We will fear everything if we focus on the problem of Satan's hatred for us and plotting against us. As long as we focus on the problems, comfort will elude us. But if we turn from those problems and focus instead upon God, our confidence will be unshakable. We will remember the precious promises God has given. We will be reassured by the preserving work God has revealed to us. We will trust Him steadfastly in the face of every single trial. We must keep our eyes upon God, His character, His promises, His faithfulness. We must keep our eyes above all else on His Son, Jesus Christ. 
whose love for us took Him to the cross, whose sacrifice rescued us from death, whose resurrection gives us victory over sin and Satan and death itself. As long as we keep our eyes upon Him, our confidence will be unshaken. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we need to teach little Aubrey and all of our children. We must teach them what our God is like in His holiness, His mercy, His faithful love. We must teach them how He has delivered His people in the past. We must teach them His promises fulfilled in Jesus. We must teach our children that they too might confess confident faith in Him. Joe, that's a big job, isn't it? But you and Cassie are not alone in that. We stand with you, and we must. Because only as Aubrey and the rest of our children see in us, not fear, not joining in the terror that so often rattles our, our people, but as they see us remembering in the midst of chaos the love and the faithfulness and the might of our God, they will learn where their hope is to be found. They will learn where comfort is located and they will rest in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You that You are so gracious and so good to us. And we pray that You would fill us with the confident faith that comes only through Your Holy Spirit. Bless us and watch over us, we pray. Give us that confident faith displayed by Habakkuk. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.